Living in an agricultural town? No, I mean serious. <laughs> no, but um, you know that it's not, not every kid or family that, that gets to grow up watching a crop grow around them. There's a sense of where you're at in the year, what time of the year it is, just when you look out the window. I mean, obviously it helps when the leaves are falling off the trees, but really get, you know, gives you a sense of the celebration of harvest. And obviously the significance of Harvest Fellowship is, is neat to see tied up into that. Uh, so we're looking forward to this first harvest celebration with you guys. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I just thank you so much uh, for the reminder this morning that our time here is all about you and it's all about um, what you have planned for this world. The things that you had designed before the foundation of the earth, before you spoke anything into being. And Lord, that right there is bigger than our minds can handle. And so we leave that with you. Father, I just pray that this morning you would speak to us through your word, that your Holy Spirit would just really have its way with our lives. Father, I pray that um, we would just have the blessing of seeing you more clearly. I pray, Lord, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would speak through my words, that you would give me words to say, even though I had, that I had not planned. Lord, um, just be treasured in our hearts this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to be looking at Genesis 3 this morning. And I had planned on looking at this together with you for quite a while. As I've mentioned before, next week we're going to be looking at John 3. And so... The purpose of these weeks is to kind of look at the, the landscape of our life, the world that we're living in. What does it mean and why do we live in a world that is corrupted by sin and why is there a need for a savior? What relationship with God did we have that he graciously gives us the opportunity to return to. The danger of preaching on Genesis 3 and the fall of mankind is that it looks like I'm now giving you a report of what I've experienced over the last two weeks, and that's not at all, you know, the reason for that. The other danger of preaching it in October is it looks like I'm preaching on Halloween or something like that, and that's not it either at all. But we're going to be looking at Genesis 3 this morning. This passage has had a huge ministry to me over the course of my walk with the Lord. It has been there to help me assess what God is doing in my life, what, what, um, where I am at in my walk with Him. Because my walk with him very much is, as with anybody, it's a battle in this world. It's a battle that takes courage. 
It's a battle that requires help. It is a battle in many ways where we are doing about 0.001% of the work uh, in reality. But we learn so much from this passage of Scripture um, and that's why I've titled this Know Your Enemy, Know Yourself. If you had a chance to record the last 6,000 years of human history, think about what you would choose to record and how big that book would be. Now let's think about that if you had to do in about 13 pages. The last 6,000 years of human history. Think for a second about what events you would include. The first 11 chapters of Genesis has been called truncated history. You know, it's, it's just taking important moments and, and writing about the detail of those moments and then stepping out of history and going to the next important moment. These passages in Genesis 11 are ones that would affect the entire human race for the rest of history. And that's part of the reason why Genesis 3 uh, up until verse 8 that we'll be looking at this morning is included in there and, and the following as well. Every word in Genesis, is, Genesis 1 through 11 um, although I, I have a hard time finding the significance in the uh, so-and-so begat so-and-so and so-and-so begat so-and-so but there's even, even significance in there as well. Um, I'll try to keep from going into it. But let, let's just look, get some context here at Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17 first. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat, from any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Step ahead to verse 25 of Genesis 2. So here we have it says, The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her. Now, just to say for a second here, 
we have a tendency to give Eve all the blame here. I want you to notice what it says, Adam, who was with her. And he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Adam and Eve were placed in the middle of the most perfect setting for mankind that, that could ever be imagined. They were placed in the middle of the beautiful Garden of Eden. You could say that, that Adam was God's gardener, that he, that he had a job to do. Everything that they desired was right there at their fingertips. And this turned out to be their downfall. So why is this passage here? It explains to us why we have unhealthy relationships with each other. It explains to us why, although we have a longing to walk with God in the cool of the day, why we hide from Him, why, why we were afraid of Him. It explains to us why all of human history is affected by sin. It's amazing to see nations put their hopes in, in you know, one man coming to, to save them from everything. You, know, you see nation after nation all across the globe, and then that one man comes to power so often, and whether before or after coming to power, becomes corrupted with that power. And it, and it all becomes about him. Trailing on from this passage, just a chapter later, we see the first murder within their own family, a brother killing brother, and the consequences that come from that. We see the world become so corrupt that God must wipe out all of humanity, save one family in his grace. And why is it there for us to learn from? It, it explains all that we see around us geologically. It explains, uh, these chapters explain for us why we have different nations, why we have different ethnicities. As once again, the people gathered together and they baked their bricks and they used tar for mortar. And in my opinion, they thought that the, the problem they had before was that they just didn't have a mountain tall enough. So they used tar for mortar as if to threaten or shake their fist at God just in case he tries to scatter us. And so it explains to us why we have nation against nation, why we have cultural misunderstanding. The chapters of Genesis 1 through 11, again, explain to us issues that affect all of the human race. And these verses that we're looking at are foundational to that. But I hope that from these, you gain not only an understanding of the landscape of our battle against temptation, but I hope that you also see in this the grace of God, the mercy of God, the, the love of God. It's amazing. These verses tell us why it is that we are born 
sinners. As Romans 6 tells us, enemies of God. And why it is that God must pursue us if we were to have a relationship with him. I shared with you back in August from 2 Corinthians 4.4 and I'll just uh, refer to it here. That, that contrasted with, contrasting with the God of creation, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they may not see the beauty of the gospel in the face of Christ. But the grace that meets that comes in verse 6 where it says, but the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, this same God, that walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day has shown his light into our hearts so that we might see the beauty of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I hope you see the grace of God in this passage as well. Historically, nations have spent billions of dollars at any given time to know the smallest bit of information about their enemy. And information on, is very important about enemies on the human level and it's no less important on the spiritual level. It's no less important in our spiritual enemy, our greatest enemy that we face. The study of the fall of Adam and Eve hopefully will help us to better understand our enemy and how he tries to defeat us. The Apostle Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 11 when he says, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'd hope also that the study of Adam and Eve will help us to better understand ourselves and how we tend to miss out on the relationship with God that we were intended to have. Know your enemy, know yourself. We'll see this in three things I, that, that I see in this passage. And, and I'll just list them for you here and we're going to go on through them. But it's the setting of deception and the sowing of doubt and the surrender to death. In living in Rapid City over these last five years, I got a lot of opportunity to, to be friends with Air Force pilots. Um, specifically B-1 bomber pilots. The first bomber that was made to fly at supersonic speed. And I, I love just talking with these guys about their missions, about their training. It was most interesting to talk to guys that had um, done tours embedded with the army. And so what that would mean is when there would be a mission, these guys embedded with the army would be um, would work between their army battalion and the Air Force. And so when there would be a mission, they would go to their Air Force commanders and they would understand what sort of tactical platform that they had, that they were working with. They would gather the intelligence from the intelligence officers. It would be coordinated with the intelligence officers to know exactly what it was that they were fighting against. So they would know what sort of, I'm not even going to attempt names of airplanes and helicopters and things like that. But they would work from an operational platform in terms of air and ground 
in order to best ensure mission success. If they didn't feel like they had the right platform to work from, they would add to that or take away in order to fit the mission. That intelligence and that work beforehand was so important for them. And I don't think it's any less important in your work in seeking to glorify God in your life, to find joy in serving God in your life, in fighting against sin. We see first the setting of deception in verses one through three. Notice this setting here. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch, touch it or you will die. Now I don't quite understand the reference here to the serpent is to our enemy, the devil, known as Lucifer, the shining one. I, I don't perfectly understand if he was possessing a serpent or, or if you know, this was another nickname for him in the sense of serpent. We do know that we have serpents today we do know that they carry on the curse that was put onto this original serpent in the sense that they don't have legs. They crawl on their bellies. But I don't think that all serpents at the, you know, at the creation were basically the devil. So there in between there, it, it's, it falls into a place that I don't clearly understand. Wasn't there. We aren't told. But we do know that our enemy is embodied here that our enemy is personally present here in this conversation. He's described as being crafty. Another word for crafty would be prudent. If you're prudent with your money, you know where the dangers for your money is. You know where the advantages for your money is. You know a good deal when you see it. It's, that's what it's, we consider being prudent with money. To be prudent means to know where the dangers and the traps and the snares lie. And for our enemy, he uses these to his full advantage. In 1 Peter 5, we're told that he is prowling like a lion, seeking for someone to devour. Just a chapter later uh, than the verses that we're looking at here, Cain is told that sin is crouching at his door, but he must master it. it its will is to have him, but he must master it. It's told in John 8 by our Savior that, that Satan was a murderer from the beginning, of the father of lies. In Luke 4.13, when he's tempting our Lord, he withdraws from him, but it describes him. It says the devil departed from him until a more opportune time. I want to read for you from Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. This is describing Satan in his pre-fall state and in his fall. Lucifer was one of, if not the chief angel that God had created. 
And you see in verse 12 of Isaiah 14, how you were fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you were cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. Now this passage of scripture does not completely describe Satan as having been created in heaven originally and falling from there, but combined with other passages of scripture, we deduce this. So just in case you're sitting there going, I didn't, find, I didn't see that in there. But it's describing here the position that he held. This is probably more of a mocking statement when it says, O day star, O son of dawn. It's like, look where you've fallen to. But I want you to see in here that what the sin of Satan was originally. Our enemy's spirit is the spirit of not enough. To sit in the very throne room of God. To serve in the very presence of the Almighty. But it's not enough for him. It wasn't enough. It's the sin of self-promotion. I will be like God. And there's something in us that that resonates with. And we'll see that in a moment. As I said, this is about knowing our enemy and knowing ourselves. I want you to see here that the target of our enemy is our obedience to God's commands. The, serpents tests, the serpent tests Eve's knowledge of God's command. Did God really say, he says? John 15.10 tells us that it's only by keeping God's commands that we are able to abide in God's love just as the Son abides in the Father's love. His target is not our emotional state. It's not our feeling close to God. It's in our obedience. His target is our obedience. The devil is crafty. He knows the ropes. He knows the snares. He knows how to use them. And it's safe to say that after 10,000 years, he's only gotten better. He's not someone to be messed with. But we're also here talking about knowing ourselves. We will always be tempted to step out from God's authority. We are lightning rods for temptation. As long as we live in a fallen fleshly body, we are going to face temptation on a daily, if not moment-by-moment moment basis, for sure. We will always be tempted to redefine what God has commanded. We're, we live in the realm of redefinition of what he's given us to do, of what he's told us about himself. Uh, as... as um, Mike and I were just visiting the other day and, and I was, I was uh, talking a little bit about this message and I appreciated him bringing up Jeremiah 17. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? You know, the challenge here, guys, is the heart. You'll hear me say this at other times. The heart is like a rudder. It's where our desires lie. It's like the rudder of a ship. Where it is pointing, that is where you will go. But the beautiful thing is God wants to be desired. And that means he's got every plan of helping you change your desires, to change the rudder. You know, we can fight in our flesh against our desires, but until we work on the position of that rudder, we will be continually going toward those sinful desires. So it asks this question, who can understand it? I want you to notice the following verse, verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. I think of David praying, Lord, search me and let me see if there's any wicked way within me. Isn't this a beautiful thing to know that while uh, we have ruined our hearts by choosing not to follow Christ, by choosing not to live by God's commands, but yet God, by allowing us to ha- walk in relationship with him, we can walk in a knowledge of where our heart is pointed. We can walk in a knowledge of what our heart is longing for. That's grace and mercy. Do me a favor here. I'm just asking you to think about it. Think of that one temptation for you. Uh, The one that so easily entangles, as Hebrews talks about. Can you state the command which prohibits against it? Can you state what God's word says about it with definitiveness? If not, you're in a more dangerous spot than Eve was. Your setting of deception is even more dire. His target is your knowledge of his truth. Our enemy's target is your knowledge of God's truth, I should say. Where in your life are you having a conversation with the enemy? With the internet and conveniences, everything we could desire is right at our fingertips, right? Just a click away. Whether it's buying things we shouldn't buy or looking at things we shouldn't look at or talking to people we shouldn't be talking to. It's right there. The desire of our heart. You know the beautiful thing is? God is right there too. And when he can so change us to be the desire of our heart, he's right there all the time to enjoy, to fellowship with, to be a part of. If your challenge is what you watch on TV, what channels does your TV get? If it's anxiety, what do you think about? If there's an attractive person at your workplace, who's holding you accountable? If it's gossip, what, what do you remind yourself of in those moments? Um, how are you submitting your heart 
to the Lord's examination. That's so vital. That's so important. Because if we're left to just our hearts, we're going to be deceived by them. And deception is the way that our enemy works. Well, we're going to move forward into the idea of from the setting of deception to the sowing of doubt in this conversation. In verses 4 through 5, our enemy says, You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Notice how our enemy intertwines lies with truth. They would be like God a little more. But it would bring death. For sure. Notice he sows doubt of God's truthfulness. He directly contradicts what God has said. God said, you will surely die. The enemy says, you surely will not die. Notice he contradicts not just doubt of God's truthfulness. He sows doubt of God's motives. He reasons that God has ulterior motives. That God is keeping something from them. You know, it makes me think of um, a professor that, that just shared with us one day. He said, you know, every, every trial and temptation that you will face can be answered by, and the doubt that you, that you face in the midst of that can be answered by the child's prayer, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him. He's great enough to be right here and he could do something about this. And he's good enough to have my best interest in mind at this moment. And I can thank him for that. Notice how he attacks that for Eve. He doesn't have your best interest in mind. He's just holding something back from you. God doesn't really know what he's talking about. Know this enemy. I can remember meeting with an accountability partner when I was in seminary and, and I, was, I was confessing to him that, that I, I um, had been failing in sin and, and I kind of described for him the process. Okay, and I thought that this wouldn't matter and, you know, I was fine here and, you know, I, maybe, maybe I had impressed God with this area of my life so maybe this area of life wouldn't matter. And he leaned across the table and this is all he said. He said, ah, you surely will not die. And for me, that, that was like a light turning on of realizing I was lying, I was believing a lie and allowing myself to go along with that lie. <clears throat> we want to not just only know our enemy, but know ourselves Think again about that sin for you. Know that the path that takes us towards sin is always the path of pride. It is always the path of, I can handle this. I, um, this is not going to be a problem for me. It may trip somebody else up. It may ruin somebody else's life. But it's not going to be a problem for me. I can handle it. I can take care of it. It's that temptation of you will be like God. 
You can know of good and evil and it's not going to be a problem for you like it might be for someone else. I don't know who else they'd be looking around thinking it might, there's nobody else that they could say it'd be a problem that, for that guy over there. They were all by themselves, I guess. Um, well, we know. You know, in legalism, um, this, in reality, legalism is, is religion, even Christian religion, that rather than moving a person toward God because it's a path of pride, is actually moving the person away from God because what is happening? The enemy is telling them, if you just try a little harder, you can what? You can be like God in your work, in your effort. You don't need his grace. Just wear your hair right and the right length of dress or, or, or whatever. I, I don't know how legalism manifests itself in this area yet. But it manifests itself everywhere because everywhere there's humans, everyone is being tempted with this idea, you can be like God. And that's how it creeps into even our relationship with him. But it's actually a path away from him. As we, talk to, as we talk about sin, as we talk about temptation, as we talk about what we can do to better defend ourselves, to better rely on the Lord, please don't take this as you need to be trying harder. You need to be trying harder. Because, uh, and I almost shared this verse last week when, when I was sharing about verses that have impacted me most from Genesis 3.3 where Paul asks the question, are you going to complete in the flesh what was begun by the Spirit? Are you going to complete in the flesh by your own effort, by your own blood, sweat, and tears what was begun in you by the Spirit? This is not a path of pride of I can do this. Okay, now I'll just try to keep track of where, where am I at in this setting of deception? Where am I doubting God? This is a path of humility, of Lord, I need you. You've given me every opportunity to walk closely with you, even though we've marred this world with sin. And I need you. I need you to deliver me. I need you to break my pride. I need you to give me humility. This is a path of humility, not a path of pride. In thinking about that sin, isn't it the case that that when we're walking down that path of temptation, we really don't believe that that sin is going to lead to death. We've been promised in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. I want you to understand the context of Romans 6.23 is talking to believers. I know that we share that verse with people and we should share that verse with people when we're sharing our faith that the wages of sin is death and that is why we deserve death. But the context of that verse is talking to believers. We die every time we sin. We kill our friendships. We kill our fellowship with God. Not our position in our relationship with Him. But we kill that, low, that nearness. We, we, um, we kill a lot of things. We do die every time we sin. Do you struggle with God seeing him as some sort of cosmic killjoy? 
Like, man, you know, like a movie theater, you know, looking at all the listings. Man, I, can't, I can't see any but maybe one of these. You know, do we see it life and think, oh, man, God, this is all the fun things in life. And these are the only two I get to choose from. What's wrong with you? Notice that that is the same temptation that, that Eve was tempted with in terms of, for God knows. God's holding something back from you. God's just kind of k- keeping you. But, but this is, don't, don't feel beat up about this. Just recognize it. That he's doing the same thing he's always done. Our enemy is. In making God seem like a cosmic killjoy in your life. I can remember um, uh, I have a, a nephew and um, he was at the age where he was brushing his teeth on his own and he kept going to the dentist and the dentist kept telling his mom he needs to brush his teeth better. He needs to brush his teeth better. And finally he went to the dentist and yeah, you guessed it. Like me, I went to the dentist once when I was a kid, five cavities. You know, um, I, I wasn't too good at that. And, and my nephew is kind of following in my footsteps, I guess. A bunch of cavities. His mom says to him, aren't you brushing your teeth? He says, yes. Well, the brown ones. <laughs> Honest to God truth. <laughs> I'm brushing the brown ones. See, we have this tendency to think I can control the consequences. And so we, we end up living our life just trying to do what we have to do to keep that relationship together. Or just living our life to try to just keep from failing that class. Or, or to just try to keep from getting um, so involved with the sin that it becomes open to everyone. Or starts affecting our life. When the answer is, guys, is throwing ourselves on the Lord's grace, saying, Lord, I am the problem. I am the problem. I love the passage, the verse from James 4, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. What an awesome, awesome promise. Because he never goes any distance from us. But yet, he would come and take those huge steps back toward us when we turn our head toward him. It's not just a matter of controlling the consequences. We see also in verses 6 through 7, the surrender to death. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom... She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve's disobedience, it couldn't be blamed on their circumstances. They were in a sinless perfection. It couldn't have been blamed on their parents. Their environment, you know, is it nature, is it nurture? It was neither one for these. 
But in being made in the image of God, we are going to face the temptation to be God. At least in attempting it. You could define sin as taking something that God has created for his glory and our enjoyment and seeking to satisfy our desires for that thing outside of the boundaries that he has put around it. Taking something good and using it in a way that it was, has been forbidden or warned against. Simply taking it outside of that. It's, it's simply taking our appetites for good created things and using them for our means, for our glory, for our purposes. You see this, um, and this, and this parallels 1 John 2.16, uh, saying the things of the world are, and all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Um, Eve saw that the fruit was good for food. Legitimate. It's a legitimate hunger. It's a legitimate appetite to want food. It's the, it's the lust of the flesh to indulge. But it was simply that it was commanded against in this specific situation. So she took a healthy appetite. Adam and Eve took a healthy appetite. And in taking it beyond and outside of the parameters that God had put around that appetite, it became sin and it became rebellion against him. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes, a lust of the eyes. It probably was beautiful. It was a delight to the eyes. But in being a delight to the eyes, this is a healthy appetite for beauty. She took it beyond the boundary that God had put around it and desired that to obtain it for herself we do that with plenty of things. It was desirable to make her wise. She did desire it. It would make her wise of, of good and evil. But this, so that is a healthy appetite, and it became the pride of life to achieve. But the desire to achieve is not a bad thing. It's when we desire that more than our relationship with God is when it becomes sin. We have this tendency to think that we can measure the consequences. These things were probably satisfying to her. I have no doubt that it tasted good and it filled his belly. But the cost never could have been measured beforehand and it wasn't worth it. Any of us who'd been standing there at that moment would have been screaming, no, don't do it. Could they have ever measured the idea that the cost would reach thousands of years later and still be impacting us and will not stop impacting us until we are in the Lord's presence? When you find yourself sitting there saying, I think I got this. I think I can handle this. You're listening to your enemy. You're about to surrender to death. Our tools for temptation is legitimate appetites for intimacy, adventure, comfort, security. 
but being bound and determined that we are going to have these no matter what the cost. And it's never worth the cost if it means disobeying God to get these things. James 1 describes us as being carried away by our own desires. These desires come from our heart. These are not, it describes them as being evil desires. They are evil in the sense that the intent is, I will do whatever it takes to get these. But they originate as healthy desires. In a sense, you can say we're on lifelong diets. I've been on diets before. Diets never work if, let me say this, diets never work if you focus on what it is you cannot eat. Let's practice this, all right? Do not think of a pink elephant. Anybody successful with that? That's because these things never work if we focus on what we cannot have. Guys, God is good enough and great enough and amazing enough to fill our minds, to fill our hearts, to fill our desires. If you will go to his banquet table and eat of him and fill your mind with him and take your heart before him, and ask him to examine it and to fill it to where there is no room for anything else, he will. He, will be, he can be treasured. Now, I'm not selling some sort of perfectionism where if you could just get to this state of mind, then you will not sin because that's not the case. But that is the path. You know, little hint, I'm most successful in dieting when I focus on what I can eat. When I fill my fridge and fill my kitchen with what is good. And the same goes with our relationship with the Lord. <clears throat> so we live in a fallen and corrupt world. People ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? This is the answer. Because we brought sin in here. We brought destruction. We brought corruption. We brought hunger. We brought the idea that it's okay to, to starve another to fill your belly. We brought pain. Now we struggle with the sin of not enough. And we struggle with the sin of self-promotion. Guys, do you recognize this? I mean, how often do we sit in church and think, ah, that didn't do it for me. I hope you can recognize the spirit of our enemy in that. Because he sat in the hall of heaven. He said, ah, this isn't enough for me. We struggle with self-promotion just like our enemy. The encouragement of this passage is that Satan's only weapons against us 
are his lies. And God's word is full of every truth that we need. God is prepared. God can drop truth into our mind at a moment. Uh, thinking in terms of my, my friends who are B-1 pilots, their job is to soften up. To soften up the enemy. I want to challenge you to spend your morning softening up the enemy. Calling in the airstrikes of where you will be tempted that day. Of asking God to do that 99.99% of the work. You know, we can take this in faith. Even in, as a part of the, the, um, of the Lord's Prayer. Is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's got every desire for you to not fall. But yet, he's got you in a process and a plan that even in our failure, he's working his goodness and his grace. I don't completely understand it. I won't ever completely understand it. How he so, he doesn't just intertwine his grace. It's all his grace. It's not just an aspect of it. It's all his grace. All of our relationship with him is his grace. <clears throat> Satan's only avenues to get us are our desires. And one day, yeah, it will be because we're free of our flesh. But part of the reason why sin will have no hold on us one day is because we will be in God's presence. And all of those appetites will be satisfied all of the time at every moment and God will be with us bodily wherever we go. Now, that's my estimation. There's no, there's no verse that says that. I, I apologize. That, but I, I don't believe it's going to be, you know, sitting on clouds. I believe it's going to be him with us where we go, where we are. And we have a powerful redeemer. Enough that his life can take care of every sin of every person of every time in that moment of his death and resurrection. Let me give you three B's for battling temptation before we close. I hope that um, the first comes clear. Uh, and that is be alert. What, what is your setting for deception? Where are you in that? Where are you in that conversation with the enemy at any given time? The second is Bible memory. Whenever I hear someone say, I just don't do well memorizing the Bible, I think you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Because his target is God's truth. And the third one, B is bring someone in. Bring someone in. Adam did a lousy job. Uh, in a lot of ways, he gave up his leadership at that moment. And, and guys, we always will struggle with that uh, from that point on. But bring someone in. Get together with somebody and say, hey, I, it's not smart for me to be alone in this battle. Um, and I, I need your help here. I need your prayers. 
I need your accountability. Uh, three B's for battling temptation. I hope that uh, from our time in God's word today, and I'm a little bit somber, and I think part of that is because I don't want to come over the top beating on you guys with this because that's not what this is about at all. Um, and I hope that this doesn't come across as being a focus on our enemy because he's incredibly puny <laughs> and, and he's just biding his time until our Lord decides to just kind of go and he's done. And he knows that. And misery loves company. But you know, he would never sell it if he sold it as misery. But that's what it is. Let's bow our heads and close. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you so much for your grace, Lord, that you walk with us, that even, um, even in our sin, in our walk of humility, away from sin, that you're there, you're present. You're not standing on the outside saying, well, when you clean yourself up, I'll, I'll be here. Um, Lord, you didn't walk away. You didn't throw your hands up. You could have done this any number of ways. But in fact, you sent your son. Jesus, you lived amongst our sin. You lived and were grieved and, and um, were touching us in our most vulnerability and, and overflowed still with love and compassion for us. Lord, I don't, I don't completely understand why some stay in darkness and, and some see your light. I don't completely understand uh, why you don't move in everyone's heart and mind. But Lord, for those here who the God of this world is blinding their minds. I pray, Lord God, that you would shine your light into their hearts so that they would have the chance, the opportunity to see the light of the gospel in the face of Christ. Uh, it's our only hope, but at the same time, it's, it's more than we could ever ask for. Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.